Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnair and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. I said, you know, this photograph of you and Jamal holding hands, I said, this is not a photograph of a refugee. This is not a photograph of a disabled woman. When I took this photograph, it was a photograph of love. This week's guest photographed Marilyn Manson in a fridge. But he also went on to document the long-term impact of conflict through his Legacy of War Foundation. His work has taken him to countries like Iraq, Lebanon, South Sudan and Rwanda, and so much of his photography has led to real and tangible change. This is Giles Dooley. Giles, lovely to see you. Uh, Lovely to see you too, and thanks for having me. No worries. It's been a while. I think the last time I may have seen you was in a bar in Greece, possibly at 5am in the morning. Yeah, I think I was the last to leave that bar every night for that whole week. Love it. Very, a very impressive man, uh, Giles, no doubt. I would love if you could kickstart our conversation by telling our audience how you got to where you are now as a very renowned and brilliant photographer. It's kind of a, a long, a long story to get to where I am now, but it all starts with a small gift. It all starts with an incident when I was 18 years old, when I had a car accident in the States. Um, I was there on a sports scholarship. I was the world's worst boxer, Um, but I thought I was great. Sport was my whole life. Um, I'd gone to America to get a scholarship at a a university. And then I had a a car accident in San Francisco and I was flown back to the UK, to London, um, found myself in hospital being told I would never do sport again. And really everything that I treasured in life had been taken away from me. I was a very, very angry, Uh, 18-year-old man. I was not very academic. I'm dyslexic. I failed at school. I had no A-levels, no university place. And so suddenly to be lying in a hospital bed, told I couldn't pursue a a path in sports, I really had no idea what was going to happen next. And and I was angry with the whole world, with my parents, with the doctors, everything. And then at that that very difficult time, my godfather passed away, Uh, my godfather Barry. And he left me two things. He left me an Olympus OM10 camera, and a book by the war photographer Don McCullen. And I had never really seen photographs like Don McCullen's. My parents weren't that interested in art or the media, news, and I'd never seen photographs like these black and white images of Vietnam War, uh, famines in Bangladesh, Biafra. And I was just so moved by what I saw. To this day, if I shut my eyes, I can still see those first images of Don McCullen's. And I knew there and then that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a photographer. And I've always said it was really the moment I put that viewfinder up to my eye for the first time at 18 years old, lying in the hospital bed, was the first time I could speak. You know, as I say, I'm dyslexic. I'm not very eloquent. I'm not very able to express myself in words. But when it came to imagery, suddenly I saw the world and I could communicate with the world. It was like I'd been in a bubble until that moment. And so that's, that's, you know, how it happened. It was really like an instantaneous um, falling in love. Um, but as I say, more than falling in love, it was, it was about really being able to communicate. So I was then obsessed when I left hospital. I was there for a few months. When I left hospital, I photographed everything I could, um, was just, you know, hungry for imagery. And I had a few friends that were in bands and musicians. They asked if I'd go and photograph a few of their gigs, um, which I did. And again, I, it was... Immediately, what I also realized about photography was it was a passport into other people's lives. 
so suddenly when I had a camera, then they were like, oh, come and photograph us, hang out backstage. And let's say it was a passport into somebody else's life. And so I, I was photographing bands. Um, a few magazines saw my work, commissioned me. I think my first job was to photograph a band called the Black Crows, which is this big rock and roll band. Of course. Um, and I flew out to Detroit. Uh, I'm 19 years old and I'm suddenly on this tour bus with this band. And I remember the bass player, uh, he he was drinking from a bottle of Jack Daniels and he said, Giles, do you have a whiskey? And I said, yes, expecting to get like a sip of his whiskey. And he, he just went down, he got a whole other bottle of Jack Daniels, just passed it to me. And I'm just sat there going, this is the coolest job ever. I don't know if you've seen that film, Almost Famous, about the young guy that of goes to the fence. Yeah, yeah, classic. Well, that was my life. You know, I, I was, I say, still in my teens, and I'm on the road with Oasis, with with Black Crows, all these amazing big rock and roll bands. And you you took that iconic photo, Giles, of um, Marilyn Manson in the refrigerator. Isn't that right? Yes. Um, I mean, in fact, that was a funny story. I, I went to Miami to photograph him, and... We'd, so we'd sent there a couple of days before to, to find a location, to find somewhere cool. And I found this great old motel. And then on the day of the shoot, we had to go meet him at his house. And I turn up and it was where his parents lived. And so this, this iconic, you know, Marilyn Manson figure, we knock on the door and his dad answers. And his dad's kind of, you know, typical Miami guy. Yeah. He's got his Bermuda shorts on. And he just shouts and he goes, Brian, your friends are here. Which immediately the kind of whole aura of Marilyn Manson disappeared. And he came to the, the door and his press officer was, was in the car with me. And she said, look, you've only got maybe an hour with him. So you're going to have to do it in your hotel room. And, you know, I'd been working for quite a few years by then. And, and, and I just said, look, if I do it in my hotel room, it's going to be a boring photograph. And one of the challenges of photographing celebrities always was that is that they would just want to be photographed in the hotel room. They'd maybe done five other shoots that day. They didn't want to waste a lot of time. But it's hard to get cool images. Yeah. And I said, look, if I photograph you in my hotel room, I've flown all the way to Miami. I've been here looking for locations. If I go back to my magazine, they're just going to look at this and go, is that the best you could get? And I said, I found this great place. It's an old motel. Let's go there. And they said, well, how long would it take to get there? I said, probably half an hour. And they said, well, you haven't got time because if you get there, we have to come straight back. And I said, look, I'll make a deal with you. We'll go there. If you don't like it, you come back. I lose my job. It doesn't really affect you. I think you're going to love it. So he agreed and we drove there. And even the drive there was amazing. In fact, the whole day was magical. On the way there, we've got this, this guy, the taxi driver, who was really cool, like, you know, in his maybe 70s, greaseback hair, perfect white shirt. And he's like, man, what do you do? And, and Marilyn Manson was like, I'm a musician. He's like, yeah, me too. I'm a drummer. And he started telling us all these stories about how he was actually a gangster and he was with Frank Sinatra and he knew all these people. But then he was, he was, his life was threatened by the mafia, so he had to escape. And we were like, yeah, yeah, right, right. But we get to the location, and then he opens up his, his dashboard, and there's a gun in there. And underneath the gun is all these photographs of him with Frank Sinatra, with all these amazing Hollywood icons. We're like, this guy's for real. So I said, why don't you come in and be in the shoot as well? So we go into this motel. The motel's amazing. Uh, Marilyn Manson, I loved to photograph because up to that point, I've been photographing all these kind of rip-pop people that – you know, Stone Roses, Oasis, and they would sort of turn up at a shoot wearing, you know, a sweatshirt, going, we'd all be photographed, you know, and it was always like a nightmare. Marilyn Manson was cabaret, and he got it, and he wanted to be photographed. He wanted to be part of the whole thing. So he loved the location, and first thing he did was actually he got in the fridge. That was this huge fridge. So I photographed him. Yeah, photographed him in the fridge, and then we got the taxi driver 
was sat opposite him at table and kind of looked like his dad. Was, his, this guy was dressed all in white, opposite Marilyn Manson, all dressed in black. It was a very monotone room. And so it was one of the best photo shoots I ever did. I loved it. That is so funny. It doesn't, I'm not in any way surprised that you kind of just ended up in that situation, Giles. It just seems kind of classic you in, in, in so many ways. Um, do you want to tell us then how you came to do what you do now and do so well? I, I kind of don't want to call you a war photographer because I know it's very important to you to, to photograph the aftermath of war mm. and the, the effect on people. Um, but do you want to kind of take us to how you got there? Sure. So I, I did this kind of rock and roll fashion photography for, for 10 years. And by my late 20s, I was getting increasingly unhappy. Um, you know, I was sinking into really quite a deep depression. I couldn't really figure it out why. But a lot of it was to do, I didn't like celebrity culture. You know, the people I photographed were not necessarily interesting anymore. They were just somebody from Big Brother, somebody in a, in a band that was not really any depth to it. Um, I didn't like the way that women were portrayed um, in magazines. At the time, I was married to somebody who was a model, and I would see her coming back in tears. And I just didn't like the whole way that the industry meant that, you know, you could be shooting for GQ and you'd photograph David Beckham in a suit. But then Kate Winslet, who's just won an Oscar, would have to be in her underwear. And it came to a climax. I say, this has been building up for a long time. And I'd find myself doing big shoots, ending up in my hotel room in tears because I just felt empty. And one day I was doing a shoot in the Charlotte Street Hotel in London. And it was a young actress. And the, the shoot was supposed to be her, like, being sexy in bed with a, with a camera. And I was photographing her. And she didn't like it because she felt too exposed. And, and there was this argument going on with her agent and with the editor of the magazine who are both putting pressure on her to be you know, virtually topless and all the rest of it. And it was a moment of just clarity where I'm sat there and I'm looking at this happening and I thought, fuck, this is not why I became a photographer. This is not what I set out to do. And it's like everything came crashing down at that moment. All these th thoughts I've been having for the last couple of years. I was like, that's it. I I'm done. I mean, the rock and roll story is that I threw all my cameras out the window of the fourth floor of the Charlotte Street Hotel. And bearing in mind, these are big old cameras on tripods and the rest of it. And they smashed in the street below and everyone kind of turned around and saw me just walking out the door. Um, and it seemed like a kind of Rolling Stones moment. I'm, as you know, uh, not that rock and roll. I'm, I'm a little bit more chilled. I had a little hissy fit and threw them on the bed. That's about as far as I, I got. It's just unfortunate it was a very bouncy bed and they bounced off the bed and out the window. I, I've read that, but I did wonder if that's actually what I, oh, that's so funny. You could, you, could see the, you could see the crack in the Charlotte Street pavement for about the next decade. Whenever I walked by, I would see this crack. That is so good. So good. So it was at the end and I, I moved out of London, moved down to Hastings. I got a job in a bar. Um, nobody even knew I'd been a photographer. I, I hid that past. It was dead to me. But also I thought photography was was gone. I, I really felt lost. Um, I was drinking heavily, drugs, sinking into a very, very deep, deep depression. Uh, my marriage ended. I lost my home. And that kind of spiral carried on for another couple of years. And then at the lowest point, um, I got a job as a care worker. Um, I, it, it's kind of a, it was a coincidence, really, just a conversation in a pub led to it. And I started looking after a guy called Nick who had very severe autism or has severe autism. And I became his his carer. So I'd spend the day with him. Yeah, he's, he's not able to be on his own. Very daily functions are a struggle for him. He self-harms a lot. And he needed full-time support. The idea was I'd do maybe one day a week. It ended up becoming seven days a week and me living there with the family. And what happened is for the first time in my life, I could see the direct and positive impact I had on somebody else. You know, Nick needed me every day. And I didn't value myself anymore. I was, to say, very depressed. I didn't see any value to my own life, but I could see the value... I had on somebody else's. And so that's really what kept me 
alive at that stage. And I did that for two years, uh, full-time carer. And people couldn't really understand. You know, I'd gone from, from hanging out with Marilyn Manson, Mariah Carey, Oasis, and all those kind of people to suddenly being a job that a lot of people would look down to. You know, you're being a carer. And I said, but I'm happy for the first time. I'm happy because for the first time, I could see the direct and positive impact I had on somebody else's life. And up to that point, everything I'd done was about me, was about this industry, was about money, about commercialism. And after about two years of looking after Nick, his family said, would I consider documenting his life? Because he was struggling to communicate his feelings when he saw psychologists and doctors. Um, Nick is, is, is often nonverbal, but he obviously got on very well with me. We, we have a very close and still to this day have a very close relationship. I still see him regularly and, and count him as one of my, my dearest friends. He used to describe his autism as like being at this amazing party with all your friends, everybody you love in the kitchen, but you're stuck in the basement and you don't know how to get up the stairs. And so photographs were a way we could tell his story. So I, I started documenting him. And at one point, he even let me document him when he was self-harming. And he's punching himself in the face and bleeding. And when those photographs were seen by the psychologists and by his healthcare professionals, they suddenly saw how serious the situation was. And whereas they'd been ignoring some of the things his mother was saying, some of the things I'd been saying, the photographs proved the point. And it really started to change the care he was getting. And that was the eureka moment. That was the moment when I thought, shit, this is what I can do with photography. Photography had always been this kind of fun element. It, it, it enabled me to go to great parties and, and all those things. Suddenly, it was a tool for changing people's lives and being their advocate. So I, I just knew there and then the same feeling I'd had when I was 18 years old and I looked at Don McCullen's photographs. I had that same feeling again with my own work. And I knew that's, that's, that was my purpose. So I moved to Angola. Um, I had a friend that worked for the UN there, so I could stay there for free. I offered my services to charities, NGOs, to document the long-term impact of conflict. As you said, I'm not a war photographer. You will never see a photograph I've taken of a gun, of a tank, of a plane, of an explosion. I don't think it's possible to take an anti-war photograph um, because I think any photograph with any weaponry in it romanticizes it to some people. And I'm not a photojournalist either. Um, you know, I've not never done commissions. I don't work for magazines or newspapers. The way I describe myself when I started that work, I, I guess I was like 33, 34, uh, was I was an angry man with a camera. And I wanted to change the world. I maybe naively believe that my photography could somehow impact the world and, and conflict. That leads perfectly on to my next question, Giles, which will be a hard one for you. But is there a, a, a project or a character or a family that you could look at and say, actually, there's there's somewhere I've had impact and it's something I'm quite proud of in my career as, as a photographer? Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say I'm proud of anything I've done as a photographer. I think it's a very weird job to photograph people suffering. Um, you know, I was, I, was, I was talking to somebody about this recently that... that I always feel I'm a custodian of people's stories. I'm there, but I'm also a custodian of other people's suffering. And you take that on board and you hold that and try and do something with it. And it's hard to feel proud of that. But I would say that I'm learning how to, to use that to have a greater impact. So uh, a good example, which was a turning point in my own career, was a, a family, a woman called Khalud, who is a Syrian refugee who'd been shot by a sniper um, in Syria. She was paralyzed immediately from the neck down. She actually fell on top of one of her own children. Her family managed to get her to Damascus. She got emergency treatment, and then they had to escape to Lebanon. And when I met her, she was living in a makeshift tent made of bits of cardboard and uh, even, even billboards ripped down off poster boards and used as a roof. 
So if you imagine a, a tetraplegic woman paralyzed the neck down, living in a tent made of cardboard and bits of plastic, the children slept on the floor, she was on the bed, her husband Jamal was her full-time carer. You couldn't really think of somebody that more desperately needed help. I spent the day with her and got on really well with her family, took, a, I think, a beautiful portrait of the two of them. She's lying in the bed and Jamal, the husband, sat at the end holding her hand. And that was part of a whole series I did. And when I came back, those pictures were published and appeared around the world. And I thought I'd done my job. You know, I thought, I'm a photographer. I've done my job. I've, I've done this powerful story. I wrote it. It's published. And a couple of years later, I was back in Lebanon. And I tracked down a lot of the families from that original story. Obviously, a lot of them had moved. A lot of them had changed numbers. I couldn't find everybody. But most I had. On the last day, I got a phone call from Jamal Khaloud's husband because I hadn't tracked them down. And he said, oh, we hear you're back in Lebanon. We'd love to see you. And I asked, where are you now? Where are you? Of course, I'll come and see you. And I'll always remember his answer. He replied, we're in the same place. And it was like I'd been punched in the stomach. I, I, was, I, I felt like myself gasping for air because naively I had assumed, I hadn't even bothered to look for them there because I thought, well, my pictures had appeared. This was a terrible situation. Lots of aid agencies had seen this and even used the images themselves to campaign. Surely something would have changed. And I kind of repeated the question, but, but no, where are you? And he said, the same, the same place. So I went there the next day and there they were in that same tent. And I walked in and I, I burst into tears. And I looked at Khulud and I said, you know, I failed you. I, I failed you because, you know, you told me you trusted me with your story and I told it and nothing has changed. And I thought, what's the point of, of being a photographer? So I thought, well, the only thing I can do is to try and tell the story again and, and do more with it. So I did, and I, I documented them over that whole week. And on the last day, I always take photographs with me that I've done before to give back to people. So I had this bag, which had all these images of the, the families I'd documented before. And one of them was of Khalud and Jamal that I'd taken of her lying in the bed and him sat at the end of it. And I was really unsure because looking through my viewfinder, I was seeing the same scene in front of me two years later. And I thought, if I give them this photograph, won't it remind them nothing's changed? Won't it make them feel that I had failed them, that, that their life was stuck in this terrible limbo? But I thought, no, I have to give it to them. And I handed this photograph taken two years before to Khalud. But before I gave it to her, I, I said, you know, this photograph of you and Jamal holding hands, I said, this is not a photograph of a refugee. This is not a photograph of a disabled woman. When I took this photograph, it was a photograph of love. It's a couple who are so in love with each other, and that's all I saw. And, you know, that's when I realized, yeah, I'm not a war photographer. I don't photograph guns, tanks. You know, all my images, if you look through them, are of people holding hands, of a mother feeding a baby, of a grandmother brushing a granddaughter's hair, of a father on the floor doing a maths class with his kids, of a couple like Khalud and Jamal holding hands. And, and that's what I document is in the shittiest places in the world. I, I see love and humanity. And that photo, Giles, then I believe the story goes that somebody in San Francisco saw that photo and they eventually crowdfunded, was it a quarter of a million dollars? Well, so, so I then said I need to do something more with it. So this is where the kind of switch to, to realizing I, it would never be enough from that day on. It would never be enough uh, to just ever hand over photographs. This was about eight years ago. And so I campaigned and spoke to lots of people. I, I actually managed to get, I mean, she's, she's quite well known in that, that in that little tent in the middle of nowhere, I got Angelina Jolie to visit and I got Hilary Swank to visit on two different occasions. So Amazing. she had two, two Oscar winning actresses coming in 
Our husband was always like, who are you bringing next? Who are you bringing next? <laughs> Poor Kalud. <laughs> Part of that, and then, and then other people I knew in the States, we teamed up with a guy called Misha Collins, who's an American actor. And he does a crowdfunding campaign every year. He, he does like a, a scavenger hunt with an amazing group called Random Acts and, and Gish. And he said, would you share this story? So we did. And we raised a quarter of a million in crowdfunding in the space of a week. And most of those donations were just 5 or $10 each, small amounts. But it, it proved that when people come together around a story, and in fact, I've been, I'm now his kind of official story uh, teller each year. So we've raised over a million now. I set up a foundation, so I have my own charity now, which means we directly uh, look after families like Khalud and, and Jamal and any other families. And Khalud's an integral part of the, the Legacy of War Foundation, which everybody should go and check out and buy your book as well, Giles. But I'm also really familiar with the amazing story story of Aya, who we all love um, love to channel for. Um, you know, do, is there a sense that you can really relate to people like Kalud and Aya um, having sustained injuries like you did back in, in in 2011? And maybe if you're comfortable telling our audience a bit about that time. Yeah, well, I mean, starting starting with the injuries, what I always say was just a bad day at the office. I mean, it was 2011. I was in Afghanistan documenting the impact of the war there. I was embedded with a group of uh, American soldiers. Again, I wasn't actually telling, I wasn't photographing them. I wasn't photographing the action, but it was part of understanding the whole dynamic of what was happening there. We'd been ambushed a few times. And, and as I say, on that particular day, my luck ran out and and I triggered an IED, um, improvised landmine. And yeah, it was, was very badly injured. I lost both my legs and my arm. Um, I never lost my consciousness though. So I remember the whole experience and, and, and flying to Kandahar, the medical base. I mean, it's it, it's a terrible thing to have happened, but I still think of myself as being lucky. I, I'm a tourist when I go to these places. You know, I, I travel to some terrible places, but I can always get on a plane. And the same happened that day. You know, I got injured and I was picked up by a medivac helicopter and taken to a hospital. For the people that live it, they don't have that option. So I always find it very difficult to talk too much about it because I still see it as a position of privilege that I got injured and, and got all the treatment. And it, it slightly discredits those people that, that have to live with this every day and wouldn't have survived what happened to me. But what's interesting is, of course, it affected my work. I mean, I spent a year in hospital. I had 37 operations that year. Probably one of the biggest changes, though, was was not the injuries. I spent 46 days in intensive care, 46 days when my family was told I wasn't going to make it, 46 days when I was told I wasn't probably going to make it. In fact, on two occasions, my family was called in to say their goodbyes formally. I was on dialysis. I had kidney failure, heart failure, uh, pretty much every vital organ failed. But the worst thing is, if you can imagine lying in a bed, the lights don't go off because it's intensive care. You've always got somebody coming to you because you're literally trying to keep you alive. The average the average stay is about three days. I couldn't move. I was actually strapped to the bed. Um, I lost my legs, obviously, so I couldn't move. I had one remaining hand that was in a cast, so I couldn't use that remaining hand. I had a colostomy that I shat in. I had a tube that fed me. I had no control over any bodily function whatsoever. I could not move and I could only communicate because I had a tube down my throat by blinking. So my whole universe was inside my mind. And at the beginning, it was like being thrown in the freezing cold water in this blind panic. And you want to tell people things and you're, you're in pain and you're scared because you're choking on all these tubes and you can't talk to anyone. You can't let anyone know what's going on. Um, you're blinking furiously and they can't understand what you're trying to say. And I quickly realized that this couldn't go on, that I was going to lose my mind. So I had to build some kind of discipline into my thinking. 
So I, I started to create a universe inside my own mind, conversations and what have you. I couldn't tell the time because there's no windows, there's no clock. It's constantly light. I had no idea what time it was. And sometimes I was unconscious, sometimes I wasn't. But I realized that the nurses came very regular interviews to, to take my bloods and, and vital signs. So I thought that's my unit of time. So I separated my days into every time the nurse came, that was the next unit. And I would set myself exercises in each unit. So my favorite was 100 portraits before I die. Wow. And I, imag I imagined the 100 people I wished I'd done portraits of in my life. And I would visualize, and I say visualize because it, it wasn't just imagining it, I visualized the shoot. So I would see the person arrive, what I would say to them, we'd go to the studio, how I'd set the lights up, what camera I was using, what film I was using, what I said during the talk. Uh, then I would see the print at the end of it. I would even then critique it and see how I could do better. And then the next shoot, I would develop what I was doing. And I imagined every moment of it. And it was things like that that kept myself sane. But 46 days like that is 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 hard. That's extraordinary, Giles. I've, I, I've never... I've never spoken to you about this directly, actually. And with all of your work in your photography and in the documentaries that you've made as well, you've just such a deep sense of empathy um, and humanity about everything you do. And I can't not talk to you and, and bring and not bring up Aya because um, Aya stole everybody's hearts, as, as I mentioned. The fiercest, well, back then, I think she was three years of age um, with Spina Bifida, who also was in the Becca Valley. Um, and, and as Kalud has moved to Holland, I believe Aya and her family off the back of your work and your photography um, has moved to France. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was the, the point I was going to say is that it wasn't my injuries that built that relationship with people. It's suffering. And that's what I connect with people. So those, the injury itself made no difference to my life. It means I'm a little bit slower. I don't dance so well. What changed my life was 46 days when I couldn't speak to anyone. And I thought I was dying and I was in pain. And that's suffering. And that's what connects me to Khalud, to Aya and her family, and everybody that I photograph, which is why actually most of the people I photograph are women. Um, but they connect with me in a different way because they, they often say to me, I see in your eyes suffering. And that's what, what we build that relationship on. So Aya, you know, I met the same time I met Khalud um, in the Bekar Valley. Her mother loves to tell the story that when I turned up, she saw me and knew that I would be their savior and her, her best friend. I always point out that that's a complete lie. Uh, because actually when I turned up, she scared the hell out of me and she told me to go away. So <laughs> it's a kind of funny thing. Her, her mother is the most protective mother you could imagine, which is exactly as she should be. And the idea of some journalist photographer turning up and photographing her, her daughter, she, she didn't like the idea and she was quite aggressive and, and all the rest of it. So, um, but I've now become very, very close to her and the whole family. And at first I didn't want to actually even photograph Aya. She was sat in a tent. It was muddy. She has spina bifida, meaning she's paralyzed the waist down. At the time, she was three, four years old, couldn't sit up on her own. And I thought, if I photograph her, she looks like a victim. And I don't ever photograph people as victims, victims of circumstance, but not in, in their own rights. So I decided not to photograph her and just to hang out. But I soon realized that actually Aya was the feistiest four-year-old I've ever met. She didn't just run her family. She ran the whole refugee camp. And it, it kind of started with her older sister, Aman, who had actually saved her life and carried her all this journey to Syria. She looked at her sister, Aman, and Aya just said, hey, donkey, pick me up. And so Aya was picked up, and then we walked around the camp, and she'd see somebody selling bread, and she'd be like, hey, donkey, give me bread. Somebody with water, she'd be like, hey, donkey, give me the water. And everybody did what they were told, and everybody was called donkey. And she would say, hey, donkey, take my photograph. And so I, I knew that she liked me once she started calling me donkey as well. <laughs> what a legend. Yeah, absolutely. And, and she was just this amazing character. So in the end, I photographed her and she's actually playing hopscotch with her sister and it's a, it's a fun photograph. 
And so, yeah, I went back. I made an unreported world on, on Aya and her family and then kept campaigning after that. And eventually they were relocated to France. And actually, I, I went over to Lebanon to help them pack. And they only had a couple of days. And, and I turned up and they had one suitcase, which was all they were allowed. And I opened it up and, and she had Aya's mother. I looked in it and there was just two blankets and a load of herbs and spices. And I said, but you're leaving all your things behind. You know, you should take that. And she, I said, what have you got the stuff in here? And she said, well, I've been told it's cold in France, so I have the blankets. And then I said, what about the herbs and spices? And she said, I'm so scared she has to go to France. She goes, but if I have a taste of home, I know I'll be okay. Amazing. And said, yeah. And so they got there. Um, apparently, they were all scared on, on the plane. But Aya was screaming, go, go, go. Yeah, they got to France. And yeah, it's, it's so moving for me to see a, a family that really has suffered so much and now flourishing in France. I get photographs. I, I got a video a couple of days ago of Aya's birthday. She's in school now. She's making things. She's, she's having a great, great life. Last question. This might be another hard one for you, but is there a crazy moment within your amazing career that you can tell us about that perhaps isn't so well known? It was very, I mean, I remember once doing a shoot of a band and coming back, seeing the editor a week later and him go through the pictures and said, Giles, there's only one picture in focus. Oh, stop. And he goes, and that's of you. And I'd been so drunk, I'd actually given the camera to the band. I didn't even take any photographs. I don't remember it and, and got back. So it was amazing. They kept um, kept giving me work. But in terms of, you know, the, the work I do now, um, you know, I love what I do. And maybe it's not a crazy story, but it's something that I've maybe learned over my career. One of the first photographs I ever did in Angola was of women who survived the um, Civil War and were hiding in a in a building. And it had taken me a few days to get their trust. And it's a beautiful, very Salgado, Domicolon-esque image of these women around the fires, cooking their food. It's a beautiful image. But at the time, I thought I had to show them in a very reverential way. What they were actually doing, because they'd never seen a white guy and they finally got used to me, is it was their game that they would come behind me and pinch me on the ass when I was taking a photograph. So these women pinched me on the ass and then all kind of burst into laughter. And I didn't take that photograph because I thought I shouldn't portray them that way because I had this idea of how I was supposed to do it. That was, you know, 20 years ago. Now I would only photograph the laughter. And so, you know, I'm thinking of a story I did in Congo recently. Um, actually, it was in Rwanda, but it was... Uh, sorry, in Angola, but women who'd come from DR Congo. And I'd gone there with, with a, uh, a UN body, and they'd sort of found some people that I was supposed to interview. I always do what I normally do, which is sneak off when no one's looking, and I'd headed off in the wrong direction. And gone around the camp, and I saw these two women sat outside a tent. And I went over and sat myself down next to them. I looked at them, and they kind of just stood looking at me, and I said, well, you two look like trouble. And they went, oh, we are. And I said, right, you're the people I'm going to hang out with. The person from the UN comes running over looking panicked and I'm like, it's all right, I found the story, you can go. So I stayed there and got to know these women and we had such a laugh and they said, we want to do pictures like you did with your fashion stories. And we said, we get rid of all the men, we get rid of the kids, we'll provide the alcohol because they homemade alcohol, you just have to bring the batteries to the radio. So I did, all the men were sent away looking at me a bit kind of disgruntled about who's this guy and why, why, why is he allowed to stay and we've got to go. I brought these batteries to the radio, so we put that on, and they had this homemade alcohol that was was vicious. And we spent the day just drinking, dancing, and making photographs. And it was a joyous day. I mean, it was an amazing, full of laughter. The kids turned up, and 
one of the women, she was like, the kids were like, oh, who's this? And they go, well, this is your Uncle Giles. And you can see the kind of look of confusion. They're looking at this white guy going, I, I don't quite see how this works. But it was a beautiful thing. And that's the outcome of the suffering that I went through, the years of learning about my unconscious bias and how I should tell stories. And that for me, it means I'm still having a rock and roll life. And I'm still enjoying and partying like I ever did. But now with people who have real stories, real things, and hopefully creating real change. Well, that is absolutely amazing, Giles. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Honestly, such no, it's, it really is my pleasure. Thank you so much, Giles. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson.